the next several weeks, well, next several months, I suspect it's going to be over 40 lessons in the book of Revelation. It's going to be exciting. Um, I am excited. I, I was telling Jeff and Nisa in Sunday school this morning that I began to feel being led towards pray, preach through Revelation after Joshua toward the end of last year. And then once I decided that that's for sure what I felt like the Lord was leading me to do, it was really hard for me not to jump right into that in December and not do the, the Christmas series. And then even last week, I wanted to just like, eh, we'll do our prayer service another time, jump right into it. I, I'm i excited about this series. I think this series will be a, a, a powerful study that will strengthen us and encourage us and challenge us in our relationship with Christ and what it means to live for Him uh, in a time when things are difficult and uncertain and chaotic. Now, the book of Revelation is probably the most misunderstood, misused, and misinterpreted book of the Bible. And it's caused many people to avoid reading it and studying it and preaching from it, which is too bad because the book of Revelation is it is a wonderful book. It's powerful. It's encouraging. It is challenging, life-changing, and it is extremely relevant to our world. It is relevant to every day and every generation that has ever lived. As we get into the book of Revelation, this week we're going to start with an introduction to Revelation. And in the introduction, I'm going to answer four questions. What is the book of Revelation? When will the prophecies of Revelation be fulfilled? Why was Revelation written? then how does Revelation help us? So here we go. What is the book of Revelation? Look at Revelation 1, verse 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God, And the testimony of Jesus Christ and all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. Now in these three verses there are two words which are key to understanding what the book of Revelation is. The first is the word revelation. It literally means an uncovering. It means to reveal something which was previously hidden or unknown. So in the book of Revelation, God is giving us information which was not only previously unknown, but which could not be known by any other means other than God revealing it to us. And we see God, what God is going to reveal through Jesus, through John, are things which must shortly come to pass. That's going to be a key phrase throughout our study in the book of Revelation. Now look at verse 19 of Revelation 1. Write these things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So, God is going to reveal things to Jesus. Jesus is then going to reveal those things to John. And John then is going to write them down in this book which we hold In our hands. And the things John is going to write down. It says the things which are. And the things which shall be. Now that phrase. Which are and shall be. Is important. The things which are. Reminds us the book of Revelation. It meant something to the people. At the time it was written. 
Right? Revelation meant something to the seven churches and to all the churches in the day and age in which John wrote this down. So as we study the book of Revelation, we always have to keep that in mind. There was a right now. It meant something to them at that point in time. However, notice it goes on to say, in the things which are and shall be. The things which are hereafter, shall be hereafter. So Revelation meant something then, and then Revelation means something now. Revelation is a very relevant book. This is reminding us that while it meant something then, what it meant then didn't stay there. It means something for us in our day as well. Go ahead and turn back and look at Revelation 1 and 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. So the second word, the first word is revelation. The second word is prophecy. That's important to understand what the book of Revelation is. Prophecy is similar to revelation and it is telling us something is about to take place. Now, in this case, the prophecy that John is going to write is connected back to something God has already said. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he sees a statue. And he describes it in all of these various ways. But, but Nebuchadnezzar has no idea what the dream meant. So he calls all of his wise men together. And he says, tell me what I dreamt and tell me what it means or I'm going to kill all of you and your families. And they said, that's impossible. No king has ever asked anybody to do what you're asking us to do. So the king set out to kill the wise men in Babylon until they got to Daniel. And Daniel said, give me some time and I'll go see and I'll ask God what he has to say. And then Daniel received the revelation, the understanding, and he went and told the king this. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king, maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions upon thy bed are these. Then Daniel goes on to list it. Now, notice the wording Daniel uses. It's very similar to what we see here in the book of Revelation. God is revealing secrets to Daniel to make known to King Nebuchadnezzar something that is going to happen in the latter days. Now, if you know the story, Daniel goes on and explains it, and he says this. This is just a, a summary. And in the, and in, the, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So God gave Daniel, or gave Nebuchadnezzar, and then gave Daniel the interpretation, a vision, a dream about a kingdom which would come, and which would, really, it would conquer and destroy all other kingdoms. Right? This kingdom wasn't going to come and prop up an earthly kingdom. Instead, this kingdom was going to come and it was going to destroy every other earthly kingdom. And it would stand forever. It would be great and glorious and there would be nothing had ever been like it before. Now, the everlasting kingdom, which God was going to, to establish, began to be established when Jesus came to the earth. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was the inauguration of the kingdom of God, which God was going to, to bring to fulfill Daniel's prophecy. 
And the kingdom of God has been advancing every since. And now in the book of Revelation, God is going to bring that kingdom into completion. The kingdom, the everlasting kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Daniel explained in his dream. It is going to be fully realized at the return of Jesus Christ. He is going to come and break every other kingdom. And he is going to set up an everlasting kingdom. And the book of Revelation is a prophecy revealing the coming of the kingdom in the fullness of its power. So the second, first question, what is the book of Revelation? It is God revealing to us, Him fulfilling the prophecies He's given for Jesus to return and set up His kingdom in the fullness of its power. Secondly, when will these prophecies be fulfilled? Now, since Revelation reveals things about the future and gives us prophecies about the completion of the kingdom of God, a valid question is, when will these things come to pass? Now, there are four major interpretations of the book of Revelation, or four ways to interpret the book of Revelation, which seek to answer this question. Each has its own strengths and its own weaknesses. And so what I'm going to do in this part is give you just kind of a quick summary of all the major views of Revelation. Now, this part will seem probably a bit technical, like it came out of a theology book, but I feel it's important to understand there are differing views at, about Revelation as we get into it. So the first view is what we might call the, what's called the preterist view, which preterist is Latin for past. And this view says the events and the prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled in the first few centuries of Christianity. So in other words, everything we're going to look at in Revelation, it has already come to pass. It has already happened in the first and second generation of Christians. Now, the pros of this view is that it takes the fact that Revelation meant something to the people then very, very seriously. And it would seem consistent with Jesus' statement in Matthew 24 that this generation would not pass away till all these things have happened. Now, there are cons to this view, though. One of the, the cons of this view is that at the end of Revelation, we're given the picture of final judgment. And the, the heaven, the, the new Jerusalem coming down. It's hard to, to look at our world now and say we're living in new Jerusalem. We're, it's hard to look at our world and say all of this has been fulfilled. There is also what we would call the historicist view. And this view says the events and prophecy of Revelation have been and are being fulfilled in the course of history. And it often identifies the, the stuff in Revelation, what we look at in Revelation... With historical people or societies. The historicist view follows a straight line from the day of Daniel to the return of Christ. Looking at history and pinpoints when these, when these things are fulfilled or will be fulfilled. Now pros of this view is it takes seriously the idea that revelation means something for us today. Right? Because we can look at history. We can look at revelation. We can say, aha, things are being done. Now one of the, the cons of this view though is the rampant speculation this view often fuels. One of the main areas of speculation is over the identity of the Antichrist. Uh, through the years, many ideas have been given about who the Antichrist is or will be. The early church suffered hard under the Caesars. So the early church often picked a Roman emperor as the Antichrist. But then that time passed and we get to the time of the Reformers. The reformers suffered greatly under the Roman Catholic Church and the popes. So the reformers all viewed 
the Pope, that the Antichrist would be a Pope, and they saw the, the great harlot of Babylon towards the end of Revelation being the Roman Catholic Church. There, one of the reasonings for this was it talks about the great whore is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. And at the time of the Reformers, the Roman Catholic Church was killing more Christians than Rome ever had. So there was that idea. Now, when that has gone on, now there have been several other attempts to picture the Antichrist. Some that in my lifetime. Um, Hitler, of course. Well, not Hitler wasn't in my lifetime. But Hitler obviously was considered to be an Antichrist because of his focus on killing Jews. Mikhail Gorbachev. Was I remember people talking about him being the Antichrist. The, you remember that, that great stain he had on his forehead? That was the, the mark of the beast that he had. Uh, Ronald Reagan. I, I can remember people saying Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because his name is Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six, six, six. So Ronald Reagan was seen as the Antichrist. President Obama. Uh, you, can, you can Google President Obama the Antichrist and there are articles and videos explaining how President Obama is the Antichrist. Uh, Trump has been given as the Antichrist, mostly because just, you know, he's mean, so mean people have to be the Antichrist. Uh, another area of rampant speculation from this view would be over the mark of the beast. Uh, through the years, several ideas have been presented as what the mark of the beast would be. Uh, one that I've heard is barcodes and credit cards. Now, for those of you that are young, you may not remember this or may not believe this, but there was a time when you went to a store and the cashier looked at the price and typed it in. Well, then they went to barcodes and the barcode, they could scan it beep, beep, and, and you, had it, you could use a credit card to pay for it. Uh, when I was a kid, everybody didn't have a credit card. We had cash and that's how you paid and then be coming out with debit cards and things like that. And so you could scan it and give out a card. And people were talking about wanting to go to more cashless area. And so the, the barcode and the credit card was seen as a, a lead into that. And, and it was even this was even fueled further when a place that in Muskogee called, uh, I can't remember the name of the rest of the, the grocery store now. But they began to do self-checkout lanes. And the self-checkout lanes, they couldn't do cash because the technology didn't exist to read the, ca the cash then. So you could scan the barcode and pay with your credit card. And that's how you had to pay. And that was a, a push toward, because when you went, see, I mean, take the mark of the beast, the Bible says you can't buy or sell without taking the mark. And then they added to it, because if you look at a barcode, there are, on the far right-hand side, or the far left there are two bars that hang down. In the middle, there are two bars that hang down. In the far right, there are two bars that hang down. So the speculation was those bars that hang down, those are numeric codes for six, six, six. And so the idea of a self-checkout lane was leading the way to where you had to have a credit card. You couldn't buy or sell without it. Then smartphones came along. And... They were going to have the technology on smartphones to be able to, to buy on them. Now you have like Apple Pay or Walmart Pay or Sonic Pay or things like that. And, and that began to do the rampant speculation. You have the, this phone and they can track you with it. And of course, you know, then you have the facial recognition. So it's in your forehead and you hold it in your hand. And there that is a mark of the beast. Another more recent views of the, the mark of the beast would be masks. There was when when all of the world broke back in March last year 
And they begin to say you wear masks. There were lots of people who said masks were the mark of the beast because stores were saying you had to wear a mask to come in. You couldn't buy or sell without the mask. And, and, mask is only one letter different from mark, right? And so you, the mask is the mark. And now, of course, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. It's going to inject a piece of technology into you and it's going to go to the back of your hand or to your forehead and you won't be able to buy or sell without it. And so taking the vaccine is taking the mark of the beast. And so over and over again, people have speculated as to what these things are. Now, we'll we'll talk about the mark of the beast in the weeks to come when we get there. But just know that speculation about that has always been a thing. There's also the futurist view. This view says the events and prophecies of Revelation are largely unfulfilled. Usually, chapters 4 through 24, 4 through 22, are awaiting fulfillment. Now, pros of this view are the ideas, takes out seriously the idea of prophecies, uh, which is a massive theme in the book of Revelation. It takes seriously that there is something for the future, not just then, but in the future. But a con of that view is what did Revelation mean for the people then? Not because it meant something to them then, so what did it mean then for those? And, and what would it mean for us today? There's the idealist view. The idealist view said the events and prophecies of Revelation have been and are being fulfilled symbolically through the church, through church history in the continuous struggle of good against evil. Uh, the pros of this view is it very much means something to everybody of every generation because it's symbolically being fulfilled all the time. But the con of this view is there's very little about this view that's meant to be very little with this view about revelation that's meant to be taken seriously or literally. Everything is meant to be taken symbolically. So those are the, the four major ways to interpret the book of Revelation. Now, with the four ways to interpret the book of Revelation, there are three views of the millennium, which is in the book of in Revelation 20, there is a, a thousand year reign of Jesus listed there. And so there are three major ways to interpret the, the millennium. First is what we call the all-millennial view. According to all-millennialism, there will be no millennium or thousand year reign of Christ, no literal thousand year reign of Christ. All-millennial Christians would emphasize Revelation as a highly symbolic book. Many all-millennial believers would even say it can be dangerous to interpret the prophecies of Revelation literally. They believe Revelation 21 through 6 and the surrounding verses uh, are in this present age. We are in the millennium now. There is the post-millennial view. Post-millennial view is Jesus will return after the millennium. Now those who believe this view will say the gospel progresses throughout the world. This progress will produce the glorious reign of Christianity, or at least Christian values, and Jesus will return afterward. Now, the essential idea of postmillennialism is progress. Some postmillennial Christians believe that this era of peace is yet to come, and others believe it began at the first advent of Jesus and will continue until the gospel triumphs over all the world, leading some to call this the eschatology of victory. But either way, postmillennialism holds most of the world will be converted by the gospel before Jesus comes back. And then there is premillennial. Premillennial is what we're most familiar with. Premillennial is what you find in, say, the Left Behind books. 
The, the premillennial view says Jesus will return before the thousand-year reign. Now, those who hold this view say Jesus's, that Jesus will literally return to earth and establish a peaceful, powerful reign over the earth, which will last for a thousand years. Premillennial Christians believe the visions in the book of Revelation must be interpreted sequentially. First, the return of Jesus in Revelation 19. Then, the binding of Satan for a thousand years and the first resurrection of the saints to reign with Jesus for the thousand years. Next, Satan is released and his and he and his deceived followers, Gog and Magog, will battle against Jesus and his people. Finally, the devil is destroyed, judgment takes place, the last resurrection happens, followed by the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, that was just a very brief and a simple and really possibly oversimplification of the major views. And, and there are subsets to pretty much every view. For instance, there are those who would describe themselves as partial preterists. And within the premillennial view, there are some who say the rapture comes before the tribulation. There are those who say the rapture would occur in the middle of the tribulation. And then there are those who would say the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation. Now, as you can imagine, there's quite a bit of discussion when it comes to which one of these views is correct. And quite a bit of the discussion surrounding these views produces what the old cliche says, much heat and little light. Uh, and so we're not going to really get into a lot of that. When I go through this, I have a view, I believe, about those. I, I believe, I, one of the major interpretive ways is how I interpret it. One of the views of the thousand-year reign is what I believe. I believe something about the rapture. But I'm not going to sit here and try to emphasize that. My goal is to give a general overview of the book of Revelation, the prophecies and the revelation revealed in there, uh, in a way that in some ways what I believe is going to come through. There's just no way it's not. But it's not going to be, I'm right, if you don't agree with me, you're stupid. You know, it's just, this is how what I see it, and then we're going to look at that and move on. All of the discussion over Revelation caused one guy to say that the millennium is a thousand years of peace Christians like to fight over. Now, let me give you a story, I don't have time for this, won't tell it anyway. When I first answered the call to preach, a church from eastern Oklahoma called me to come to preach for them. They didn't have a pastor, and they wanted me to preach before they would invite me to preach to try out to be the pastor. So the guy called. He said, hey, is this Brother Stacy Ross? said it is. He said, this is Pastor. This is Deacon Bob from XYZ Free Will Baptist Church. What do you believe about the millennial reign? I said, what? And he said, yeah, here at XYZ Free Will Baptist Church, we do not believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. What do you believe? But he didn't ask me, are you a Christian? Do you believe the Bible? Are you a Free Will Baptist? Do you speak in tongues? No. What do you believe about the millennial reign? I, I told him, I said, if that's the only the main question you have, I probably wouldn't fit in well at your church. So we didn't go there. But that's just how serious some people take it. right? And there will be discussions as we have along the way. So when will these prophecies be fulfilled? We'll see. Thirdly, why was Revelation written? Since Revelation was written and reveals things which... Are and shall be the book of Revelation means something for Christians of every generation. It meant something for those who initially received it, but it didn't only mean something for those who received it. It means something for us today, and it means something for the Christians in the future. Revelation 
is not just for them then or for the whatever the final generation of Christians happens to be. Revelation was written for the church of Jesus Christ in every generation. Why? Well, Revelation was written to give an unshakable hope to suffering disciples of Jesus. Those who initially received the letter of Revelation were suffering horrible persecution at the hands of the Jews and the hands of Rome. The Jews persecuted them for preaching Jesus and seeking to convert Jews away from Judaism. The suffering they endured took many forms, which we'll discuss further along. Rome also persecuted disciples of Jesus for their unwillingness primarily to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar as an act of emperor worship and loyalty to the state and say, Caesar is Lord. That first generation of Christians could not, would not do this because Jesus and only Jesus is Lord. So their unwillingness to offer the pinch of incense to Caesar cost them their jobs, their families, their homes, their freedoms, and in some cases, even their lives. In the midst of their suffering, which was largely due to their devotion to Jesus, they wondered why. Why was this happening? Why was it so difficult to follow Jesus? Why had they lost everything when they surrendered to Jesus? They were tempted to throw in the towel, to give up, and to go back to life as it was so the suffering would end. Revelation was written to give them an unshakable hope. Now, while Christians around the globe now, today, suffer, it's not that way so much in America. We really don't suffer persecution as the early church did or as they do in, say, Iran or China or Iraq. But this doesn't mean we don't understand what suffering is. We do know suffering. We know the suffering of sin. We know the suffering of sickness. We know the suffering of loss. We know the suffering of tragedy. We know the suffering of the destruction of a marriage. We know the destruction of watching a loved one destroy their lives. We, we may not suffer specifically because of our devotion to Jesus, but... We have not escaped this life without suffering. We know suffering. And we, as they, need an unshakable hope. We need to know Paul was not exaggerating when he said the glories of this life could not be compared. They were so great it was not even a good comparison to look at the suffering of this life. Revelation was written to help us have this kind of a hope. It reveals to us it's worth it. To be faithful to Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. Revelation was written to give us an unshakable hope. It was also written to encourage unwavering faithfulness in a seductive culture. Rome was a very seductive culture. There was the seduction of success. The seduction was played out in many ways. From the success you could only have by worshiping Caesar to the success you could only have as a member of the trade guilds with their idol worship and their sexual immorality. There was also the seduction of sensuality. Think of any sexual, sensual sin you have ever heard of and realize it was available then. It was acceptable then. It was encouraged then. Nobody thought anything of it then. And it appealed to people as it did. Our world today is no less seductive. The seduction of success causes many to compromise their values and their ethics. The seduction of success causes many people to take sinful shortcuts so they can get a little bit ahead. The seduction of of sensuality is just as strong in our day as it was theirs. If, If anything, it is more. 
Because then, if you wanted to, to take part in some sort of a sensual sin, you actually had to, to go. Now, even if you can't go and take part with a Google search, you can find it and watch it. And vicariously experience it. We as they need to be encouraged to an unwavering faithfulness in a seductive culture. And Revelation does this. And let me, two ways it does this. First, Revelation is filled with promises of blessings for faithfulness. We don't have time to go there. We'll run out of time. But when we get to Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven letters to seven churches. Every letter gives some sort of a promise for those who are faithful in the midst of a seductive culture. To those who overcome, they will get this. To those who persevere to the end, this will be their reward. But there is a constant promise of blessing for faithfulness. And they remind us it will be worth it all someday. But while Revelation is filled with promises of blessings, it is also filled with warnings of judgment for falling away. Just as there are promises for blessings for faithfulness in the seven letters, there are warnings of judgment for those who succumb to the seductive culture and either reject Jesus outright or just turn away in unfaithfulness. Revelation is filled with warnings of, I will blot your name out of the book of life. I will kill her children with death. I mean, over and over again, Jesus warns us that when we give in to the seduction of this age, there are deep, disastrous, destructive consequences. An old Southern Gospel song talks about pressing on because there's a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. There's truth in that. Revelation reminds us of the terrible consequences for abandoning Jesus and encourages us to remain faithful in a difficult and tempting time. Revelation was written to give us unshakable hope uh, in times of suffering, encourage unwavering faithfulness in a seductive culture, to refute deception in the church. In the days in which Revelation was written, there was all kinds of false doctrine and false teachers. And the false teachers, the primarily the thing they did was they encouraged people to take part in the seduction of the culture. They encouraged them to compromise with Rome. Burn the pinch of incense. Jesus understands. Go ahead and go along with the trade guilds and and their sexual immorality and their idolatry. Jesus understands. Go on with the seduction of sensuality. Jesus understands. And Revelation repeatedly says, no, Jesus does not understand. Jesus is not okay with it. In fact, in one church, Jesus tells them, be faithful unto death. They are suffering. It is hard. And he says it's going to get worse. And here's how you deal with it. You die if that's what you have to do in your faithfulness to me. Revelation reveals Jesus will bring false teachers into judgment and he will doom them to hell for eternity. False teaching abounds in our day just as much as theirs. And in our day, the false teachers say the same things. Jesus understands. Jesus is okay with your sin. It's not really sin anymore. Go ahead and take part in this. Go ahead and do this. We are constantly assured Jesus understands. And He is okay with our compromising with the world. Our compromising our morals. Our compromising our ethics. Our living sinfully. 
And Revelation is going to remind us over and over again, Jesus is not okay with it. Revelation will refute the deception we face in our day. So Revelation was written to give unshakable hope to suffering disciples, encourage unwavering faithfulness in a seductive culture, refute deception in the church, and fuel mission among the nations. The tragedy of the judgment falling in Revelation is it doesn't have to happen. That Revelation ends for some in horrific judgment. But it doesn't have to happen. Several times in the book of Revelation, we're going to see people refuse to repent of their sins. And there are consequences for that. Revelation 14, 9 through 11 gives us a description of God's wrath where they're told the wrath of God is pulled out, poured out full strength on people. And they are tormented with fire and brimstone and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. This is contrasted with Revelation 21, 3 and 4, where we're told God will be with us. There'll be no more sickness, nor death, nor parting, nor pain, because the former things are passed away. The certainty and terrible nature of God's judgment moves us to mission. Because the reality is none escape. None escape the judgment of God. Except through repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus Christ. Lest their name is in the Lamb's book of life. They will be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And it motivates us, knowing that, I must take Jesus to them. I must talk to them about the Savior. I must do everything I can to ensure my friends, my relatives, my associates, and my neighbors have repented of their sins, have believed in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they will face the wrath of the Lamb, and I don't want that for them. The horrible nature of God's wrath as revealed in the book of Revelation fuels our mission. Among the nations. Now, finally, how does Revelation help us? Again, notice in Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is he that readeth, they that hear, and those that keep the things written therein. Those who keep. Revelation is not a theoretical book made up of charts and speculation. Revelation is a practical book meant to be lived out in our day-to-day lives. So how does Revelation help us to live for Jesus in our day-to-day lives? Well, first, Revelation displays God's greatness. Revelation is not about an epic struggle of good against evil. It is about a God who just does whatever He wants to do. There are two aspects of God's greatness emphasized throughout Revelation. One is God's sovereignty over all history. All history, not just A moment, but history. God chooses when it's time for the seals to be opened, the bowls to be poured out and the judgments to be meted out. Everything happens in the book of Revelation according to God's timeline and his timeline alone. Nothing causes God to rush. Nothing delays God from doing it. When God says it needs to be done, it it is done. And then when God decides it's all over. It's all over. God is sovereign over all history. God is supreme over all things. Satan 
Satan's rebellion is seen here. He, he raises an antichrist and a false prophet to deceive the world. And if we're not careful, we'll believe like Hollywood's version of how the apocalypse happens. That it's this epic struggle of good against evil. And there's some times where it's close, but whew, thankfully the lamb wins at the end. But that's not the book of Revelation at all. They have Satan and all those who rebel against God have no chance whatsoever of winning. Throughout the book, God just does whatever he wants to do. And no one, not even Satan, can stop him. In Revelation 20, we don't have time to go there, but take some time and read it. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Just because God determines it's time. There's no struggle. There's no wrestling match. God just takes him and throws him in. And then God determines to let him release for a time. And he has this one final battle where he comes against Jesus. And it ends badly as Jesus just destroys him with the breath of his mouth. And then Satan is cast into the lake of fire where he too will be tormented for all of eternity. One of the things Revelation is going to do is... The way it's going to help us is going to elevate our view of God's greatness. Time and time again, we are going to be reminded God is in charge and can do whatever He wants. Which I think, in the world we live in right now, being constantly reminded God is in charge is going to be important. Whatever 2021 holds, whatever the future is going to bring, if the last week is anything to tell us, it's going to be chaotic. It's going to be anxiety filling it's going to be stressful but god is in charge god is in control and he does whatever he wants to do when we finish the book of revelation our view of god is not elevated and we are not just in awe of his greatness i have not done a very good job of preaching and teaching through the book revelation displays god's greatness revelation reveals jesus's glory The entirety of God's word is about Jesus, so Revelation is as well. Three ways Revelation reveals Jesus' glory. Jesus is the Savior who redeems. In verse 5 and 6 of Revelation 1, it says, And from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests to God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Next week when we talk about Jesus, we're going to be reminded He is the Savior who redeems. He has loved us. He has washed us in His own blood. He has made us kings and priests to God. Revelation is going to reveal Jesus' glory by constantly pointing us to the One who died on our behalf. Jesus is also the Lord who reigns. Look at verse 12 and 13. And I turned to see the voice spake with me and he turned and I saw seven golden candlesticks in the midst of the seven candlesticks. One like the son of man clothed with a garment to the foot girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Number 17 says, and I saw him and I fell at his feet as dead and he laid his right hand upon me saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. And then if you look at verse six. Well, verse 5, Jesus is the prince, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Verse 6, he has dominion forever and ever. Over and over again, we're going to be reminded Jesus rules and Jesus reigns. Uh, If there is really one 
primary message of the book of Revelation. It is Jesus wins. And we get to be a part of it. Again, in a, in a day when the world is confusing and chaotic, it is important to know Jesus is going to win. And we get to be a part of that. Jesus is the king who conquers. And Revelation 19, you can take some time this week and read that. Comes the end of the tribulation period when Jesus is coming to set up his thousand year reign. He comes as a conquering king. His clothing has the blood of his enemies on it and his sword is coming out of his mouth. He brings judgment and wrath on those who raged and plotted against him. Jesus conquers. Jesus reigns. Jesus wins. Revelation is going to constantly reveal Jesus' glory to us and again elevate our view of him just as it does with God. And then finally, Revelation urges us to consider the time. You know, you can't really think about the book of Revelation without thinking about the end of time. And while I'm sure every generation before us has felt they were the last generation, I can say with certainty, whether we are the last generation or not, the time for His return is closer than it's ever been. I can say this because of what the Bible says. Knowing the time, that it's high time to awaken out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. There is a sense of urgency to Paul's words. The whole point he's making is the day of Jesus' return is closer now than it was when we first believe. Now, th- this is an obvious point, but it's still one we can miss. From what I understand in God's Word, there is a day set aside. God already knows the day all of this stuff is going to happen. And if we look at it like that, there is a countdown timer. And it's counting down to zero. Started when, in the beginning, God created, it started counting down to And when it hits zero, the end. All of this begins to happen. An obvious implication of this is that every day and every moment draws us closer to this day. Paul writing in Romans is trying to alert us to this. He's trying to tell us we must wake up and live as though it's true. Now the idea of wake up here is not the... The sleep of the dead who need to be awakened through the Holy Spirit. Instead, it's the sleep of the church. Who have fallen asleep in carnal security. Have been lulled into complacency by embracing a spirit of apathy. Revelation is going to urge us to to feel a sense of pressure about this day. Look at verse 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must what? Shortly come to pass. And then verse three. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. There is a sense of urgency and immediacy in the warnings and the teachings of the book of Revelation. Even if the return of Jesus is not 
imminent as in we'll see it in our lifetime. Just seeing what we see in the book of Revelation, knowing what we know from the book of Revelation, it should press on us and give us a sense of urgency in how we live and what we do in our lives. Because Jesus is coming and He's bringing judgment with Him. I mean, something we have to understand is everybody faces some sort of judgment. There are two kinds of judgment spoken of in Scripture. There is a judgment for those of us who would say we're disciples of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3 describes it. We have the foundation of Jesus laid in our lives when we were saved. And from that moment on, we begin to build on it with gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw. How are we building The day will come when all of that is going to be judged. It's going to be tried by fire. And all of the wood, hay, and straw is going to burn up and be destroyed. What's going to be left? Think about just this year. Just the the first couple of weeks of this year. What has been the priority of your focus in life? Would, Would the things you have focused on Would they be gold, silver, or precious stone? Or would they be wood, hay, and stubble? Think of the things we got upset about this this year so far. Would they be gold, silver, and precious stones at the return of Jesus? Or are they wood, hay, and straw? Think of the things giving us ulcers, keeping us up at night. Is it gold, silver, and precious stones at the judgment seat of Christ? Or is it wood, hay, and straw? Think of the things we're giving ourselves to do mostly in our lives this year so far. Is it gold, silver, and precious stone at the return of Jesus? Or is it wood, hay, and straw? Jesus is coming. And He's bringing judgment for you and I with Him. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. God help us to feel that as we go through the book of Revelation. But the judgment seat also brings ultimate judgment. For people whose names are not written in the book of life are going to be cast in the lake of fire. And our loved ones are lost. They're living in sin. They believe false doctrine. They're living carnally secure. They are doing all manner of things that will leave them hearing, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. God help us to feel the weight of that judgment day on their lives too. Because if we're not living for gold, silver, and precious stones, we're not investing in them as we need to. God help us. To feel the pressure, to feel the urgency and say, there are some things I'm going to have to let go. They're not. When Jesus returns, it's not going to matter. And I'm going to let that go and I'm going to live for what is ultimate and eternal. Next week, we'll dig into Revelation chapter one. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you before next week to read the whole book. At least chapter 1, but try to read the whole book. And, and here's what I'm doing, and here's what I would encourage you to do as well. We're going to spend more than one week in each chapter. 
I think we'll cover all of chapter 1 next week probably. But read the whole book this week to get the big broad overview of all that happens in Revelation. You don't have to understand it, just the pictures in your head. And then, while we're in chapter 1, read it. And have like a, a, a journal. And be like, what does this... What does this teach me about God the Father? And what does this teach me about Jesus Christ? And what does this teach me about the Holy Spirit? And then what does this teach me about humanity? And then if this is God's Word, what do I need to do in response to it? And do that for chapter 1. And then do that for chapter 2. And then do that for chapter 3. Do that all throughout so that when we get to that place, you're not just totally surprised by it. You've read it, you've studied it, you've thought through it. The best way to get the most out of any study, particularly one as complicated as Revelation, is to study it. Study it out in advance. The next few months are going to be very exciting, very challenging. And my prayer for this is that we would begin to live differently because of it. My key verse for this study is chapter 1, verse 3. That we would be blessed because we have read it. We would be blessed because we have heard it. We would be blessed because we have done it. And we would be living as though the time were at hand. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.